at my workplace for the past month or so right now, we've been doing a month full of activities, um, workshops, learning um, centers, and watching videos, and having discussions about something called ED&I. So if you haven't heard this term before, what ED&I stands for is equality, diversity, and inclusion. And I think it's actually really good that we're doing this in the workplace because it's, um, it's, there's been some really good things I've learned in it. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that we did an exercise um, that allowed us to try to learn about and recognize some of our internal, often unintentional biases. So I'll give you a little description of basically how this one activity um, went one day. So what we, were, what we did was we were asked to uh, close our eyes and do a visualization exercise. And while we were doing it, um, somebody was reading a story. At the end of the story, we were asked some questions about the story um, to, um, so that we could share what we visualized as we were going through this. So I'll give you my story that I listened to that day. Just a, just a small snippet of it. So this story, um, what, you're, what you're to picture is you're going through a train station. For me, I pictured that we, I was going through a go station. So you're going through this tra train station, and you get on the train. As you get on the train, the first seats that you see are occupied. They're occupied by a parent who's taking care of their child. So you move on to the next um, uh, row of seats as you're walking down the train. In the next row, you see a person looking very professional, typing at their laptop, looking very busy. And the exercise went on. So as this exercise went on, um, there was more of the story, but at the end of it, I was asked the question, what did I visualize when I saw the parent taking care of their child? And I'll be honest, what I visualized was I visualized a mother taking care of her baby and baby carriage, um, not a father taking care of their child. And another person in my group, the small group that I did this in, uh, they were asked, why was asked what the, the business person looked like, and they said, well, a white man in a suit, not somebody uh, are not a woman, or not a person of a different ethnicity. Now, I don't think the purpose of this, and actually I know the purpose of this exercise was not to shame us or things like that, but what it, the purpose of it was, was to help us understand and recognize some of our internal prejudgments. So now that's, that's in my mind, I would actually like to do a visualization experience, uh, activity with you right now. So what we're going to do is you can close your eyes, and I want you to picture this situation. And I'm going to leave it pretty open, so you can picture whatever you like here. So let's start. So you're visualizing. You're walking down the street. You see a person. They're struggling with something. While they're struggling, or what they're struggling with, is up to you. And in their struggling, you hear them say something along the lines of this. God, why have you let this happen to me? Do you just not hear or see me, God? I know you're there. How can you just ignore me while I'm struggling? So now that you've visualized that, open your eyes. And let's reflect on this scene that you visualized. So this little example I use right here, I actually took it from an American professor of theology. His name is David Lamb. And he did this actually with um, some students in a class he taught. And he asked these, um, these questions um, to find the same kind of um, visualization to figure out what the students thought of the, their visualization exper uh, experiment. And these were some, what some of their responses were. Number one, you shouldn't talk like that. The book of Romans tells us that we are never separated from the love of God. Two, don't be so discouraged. 
because the angel Gabriel told Mary that nothing is impossible with God. And three, it can't really be that bad because the prophet Jeremiah tells us that God has a plan for us. So what he noticed when he did this experiment with his students was that we in general, average people, Christians, not even people limited to pastoral roles, but just us as a whole, we can be very good at quoting happy Bible verses to cheer people up or make them feel a little better in a bad situation, but we're not so good with dealing with these verses that deal with struggle. So let's go back to that visualization exercise that we did. Maybe your visualization was something really big that they were struggling with, or maybe the, the incident that they dealt with in struggle was something just really small and insignificant. And maybe as you were visualizing them, you might have actually thought of one of those similar answers that those students gave while they were um, doing their own visualization experiment. But this is the kicker. I left this uh, visualization experiment really open to you. You got to think about whatever you, whatever situation you would picture. Professor Lamb didn't though. He actually gave a very specific um, situation. And that situation that he gave was for his students to picture someone on the cross. Not Jesus, just someone on the cross. And let's reflect on what their answers were here. These are seminary students that gave these answers that you shouldn't complain so much. It's not trusting in God to be discouraged. And why are you whining so much? Because it can't really be that bad. They thought up those answers to someone who was literally being crucified like Jesus, and they all cited something in scripture to justify why someone shouldn't feel so discouraged because God through scripture has told us to not be discouraged. There is one thing I think that they forgot. They forgot when they made their judgment about the person struggling that in the words that they criticized the person for saying, were actually Jesus' words. And yes, I modernized them a little bit and I put them into our contemporary English, but they come from the Gospel of Mark at the crucifixion of Jesus, from Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried to God, why have you forsaken me? And at the surface level, this really just doesn't make sense. Jesus was man and divine, but he knew that God would not forsake his own. And he's not just making these words up out of nowhere. He's actually quoting something very specific. He's saying something very specific from the Psalms, from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. Or in the modern words that I used, why have you left me alone? Do you not see me, God? How can you just leave me in my suffering alone? And if we're honest with ourselves, we've almost undoubtedly felt like this at some point in our life, even if we haven't dealt with a really big struggle. We felt like we've suffered and God isn't here with us, or that God is distant when he should be near to us. And if God is loving, this raises the question, why is he distant when we need him? So this is what our question is for today. Is God distant or is God near? That's a really big question. 
because God is described as being unseen through a lot of the Bible. And if we look through the Old Testament, he really only, he doesn't interact with large groups of people that often. He generally interacts with just a specific person or a specific prophet telling them something. Yet Jesus changed that a little bit. Through the incarnation, Jesus comes and walks among people. And that's great. But if we look at this in the big grand scheme of things, Jesus was only walking on the earth for a very short amount of time, like very few number of years. So again, is God near or is God distant? And if God is distant, then are, are we missing something here? Like, it doesn't make sense that God would be distant because when I think of the people that I love in my life, I want to be close to them. I want to be in their presence. Why wouldn't God want to spend lots of time with us and asking ourselves too? especially when we hurt and we really need his presence in our lives. So that's Psalm 22 that I read uh, for you. I don't believe it's some isolated flaw either or some little catch point in the Bible that we missed and we should ignore or try to cover it up because it shows some crack in our faith. If we wanted to do that, we would actually have to cover up whole sections of the Bible then because this is actually a fairly common theme, especially if you're reading the Psalms. And this next one, I believe it cuts even harder to how the, the hurt that we feel sometimes. So this is from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So what we would classify these are, uh, as are laments. Have you heard that term before? And they're poems of despair that were prayed in times of doubt and hurt. Societally, as our modern society, I believe that we have been very conditioned to have a high degree of suspicion and apprehension towards any form of despair or expressing that despair. Like the author and pastor, Tim Keller, um, he wrote about it in one of his books and he attributed it to the feelings like this to the feeling of inadequacy and guilt that we can experience in failure. Because if we look at it, our goal in Western society is to succeed, achieve, accumulate, all these things. We're conditioned to be self-starters. The pinnacle of success is being that self-made man or that self-made millionaire, these terms that we're familiar with. And this one that's, is, that's difficult is sometimes when we think about others or when others think about us in a situation where either they or we have failed, you might have heard this line before, well, I did it, why can't you? When we experience setbacks and failures, we can despair, but what I think is even worse than just that despair on its own is that we have been conditioned to feel guilty about despair. Guilty because of all those things that Professor Lamb's students said in that exercise we did. A, B, and C from scripture, we should know better than to do those things. Guilt, and we feel guilt not just because of failing, or sorry, failure or suffering or despair, but also we feel guilt because we feel like if we're feeling out of despair, then we're not being good people or we're not being good Christians if we feel doubt. In that feeling failure, feeling guilt, and feeling distance from God is no healthy place to be in. Despite how many people feel that, it's way more common than that when we're probably willing to admit about society as a whole. So this raises the question, because Jesus lamented and when he was on the cross. 
So that must at least be the slightest hint that to lament is okay in the eyes of God. And I think this is why. The art of lamenting is a skill that the ancients practiced that we don't practice so often these days. So last week, Pastor Dave talked about how the ancients were better storytellers than we were. Because of the society that they lived in, they had to practice storytelling way more than we did. It's not like our modern game of telephone. They didn't have a lot of people that could read and write, so they had to be really good and really accurate with their storytelling. And they got that way through practice. And they were much better at lamenting also, because often I think we think that to lament is to complain, and that comes with a negative context of complaining. And I don't believe at all, absolutely not, that lamenting is complaining. They're not exactly the same. To lament is to embrace one of God's most important gifts to us, actually, our emotions. And there is another place in society where, or there's another place, this is another place, where society has butted its head in and affected our spiritual life. We in Western society can become very uncomfortable with our emotions. Um, we treat them as weakness. Like if you look in like how we talk about emotions in the English language, we succumb to our emotions. We succumb as when we fall to them, not just push ahead and um, get through them. But I think that our emotions are one of the most important blessings and gifts we have from God. Because even God experiences emotion throughout the Bible. There's times when God is described as angry, sad, joy. And there is a full spectrum of emotions here. We shouldn't classify as good or bad, but a spectrum. Just all these emotions. And it is not fair or honest to God to only bring the happy ones to him while we burrow in and hold all these ones that we call the not-so-nice ones or the negative ones. The lament that Jesus recounted on the cross is part of a process that is gifted to us from God. And that process is to take doubt and despair through prayer and petition to a place of hope, trust, and praise. So to lament is to be honest and trusting with God, to be near with God, when we would sometimes rather be distant. So I think this is our first hint at whether God is distant or near. God wants to walk with us through joy and hurt, and the first step is inviting God in. Now this sounds great, like that sounds amazing, that God wants to be with us when we hurt. But if we look at the historical record from God's own work in the Bible, then at first glance it doesn't really look that way. There are many stories in the Bible that when you read them, if you are in a place of hurt, that they're just gonna look like, yeah, God really is distant. Because let's look at a few, just at a surface level. God let basically people run wild for a little while, and things got so bad that he basically called in the flood, and for one family said, hey, you're, I'm just trusting you, because everything else is so bad. Uh, what about while God was distant, when people waited and waited in Exodus in the desert, and they waited for so long, they felt like God was distant, that they um, made an idol. Um, and we know, obviously, that that is wrong, but for them, they felt like it was the next best thing because they had a God they felt was distant. Or God was distant from Israel when the conquest by, by Babylon happened and the Israelites went into exile. Wouldn't, like, any present and all-powerful God protect his nation from being conquered like this? And even though our written Old Testament ends after the return from the exile, up until the time of Jesus in the New Testament. If you're a lover of history, you're gonna know that that wasn't the last conquest. 
a guy named Alexander the Great came along, and there was a Greek period when they were ruled by the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, and then the Romans came along up until the time of Jesus. If God were present, why would there be so much hurt, so much destruction, and so much war in the lives of his people? Because two weeks ago, we came to the conclusion about violence in the Bible that God greatly prefers love to violence, but there are times when he has used it to protect the weak from oppressors by using violence. So since there are so many times that we just listed that God didn't step in to prevent that, it sounds like God is a lot more distant than he is near. So let's return to week one of the series. Someone that we might be familiar with now, our old friend, King Manasseh. You, remem- you may remember that he was very easy to identify as one of the worst of the worst kings of Israel. And in our reading from uh, 2 Kings 21, we heard that God had abandoned Israel to be, con- uh, be conquered because of how bad Manasseh was. He did things like uh, idolatry, and he killed his own son as, as a sacrifice. Simply put, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But when we compare this story in 2 Kings of Manasseh to the parallel text in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, that story tells this, or that um, reading of it tells the same story, but it focuses on different themes, and we get this outcome. So let's read from 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 7. In the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers. If only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the, of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty, and heard his plea, and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Point two. God walks among his people, but he also desires his people to walk alongside him. There are indeed times when God has been, to put it nicely, a little bit cold to Israel, um, ancient Israel, but only after ancient Israel was cold to God first. Having a relationship with God is not a part-time job. You can't just fill out an availability sheet with God when you're going to invite him into your life. You can't be a part-time Christian or follower of God and expect God to have a full-time relationship with you or at least those times when you want it. Manasseh learned that mistake the hard way, but at least he learned it in the end. In the line in those verses that stands out the most to me is that the Lord spoke to the people and they paid no attention. 
God in this situation is calling and waving his arms and telling his people to turn back. But if you're familiar with that show, The Office, that episode with Michael Scott saying, um, when these people were living sinfully for themselves, they did it even harder. And they made no time for God until it was almost too late. Before, so I'll give you a personal story here. Before my wife and I got married, we did a pre-marriage counseling course here at church, which I'd highly recommend is a great way um, or a great thing to do before getting married because we learned a lot about ourselves and a lot about each other. It's been really helpful in our marriage. And one of the things that we learned in it was a thing called our love languages. There's a lot of different ways that people feel love. Um, and for most couples, and this can even be applied to friendships, um, it's important to know what our love language is so that we know what we want in a relationship. And it's also important to know what the partner or the friend's love language is so we know how best to support and um, be of service to them and help them. So for my wife, her love language is touch. Now, what, what comes more natural to me is I, will, I can give words of affirmation and I can tell her in a time of struggle that it's gonna be okay until I'm blue in the face. But what's really gonna matter to her is giving her a hug. Because she has that love language of touch, that, that means way more than all of the positive words that I can use to try to calm her down will ever mean. For my personal love language, it's quality time. So take, um, now talk may be good in this quality time, but it's not even necessary for me because I just want to spend time with the people that I love. That's how they show me that they love me, by spending time with me. One of my absolute favorite activities of the day is just walking the dogs with my wife. We don't even have to talk while we're out on that walk because we, we, may, we may talk, we may not, but it's just that she's made that time in her day to make me feel loved because she's taking her time to make some time for me. Walking with someone brings you closer, increases your connection with them. And God is included in this too. Because if we want to have a really good, near and not distant relationship with God, we have to make the decision to walk closely with God too, when he's desiring, desiring to walk with us. Aside from sin, there is no part of our lives that cannot be a spiritual experience if we do it with and for the glory of God. From our work, to play, to the mundane things like doing the dishes, we should invite God to be with us, to be on our minds and in our prayers and be walking with us with all the things that we do. So let's now turn to something that we might be a little bit more familiar with. It's a story from Jesus, a parable. He was teaching stories. In Luke chapter 15, from verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need uh, no repentance. 
So when you think of this story, this story might sound completely different from the story of Manasseh. But I think it's actually a really similar sto story, actually. Because Manasseh and the people of Israel paid no attention to God until they did. And when they did, God was right there. God didn't punish them for like a waiting period to let them really learn their lesson. No, he was right there. And even more than that, the punishment that they were suffering was caused by their sinfulness, not by God being angry and starting to smite them and the things you might think of in the Old Testament. The greatest punishment that we can will on ourselves is simply living without God and the consequences of those actions. When Manasseh repented, when he turned to God away from his past, God was right there and ready to love. So, let's look at this story. The people that are supposed to be good, the people of Israel and the king, that are normally the heroes in the story, they paid no attention to God. And what the amazing contrast here is that the people who are supposed to be good, when we look at Jesus' story here, the Pharisees, the priests, the scribes, they grumbled at Jesus when he was with them, when he was near to them, when God was near to them. The people who, love, who needed God's love the most were the people most different, uh, distant from love in their society. They were the ones who drew near to him, the sinners and the tax collectors that he talks about. And because they drew near to him, Jesus loved them and broke bread with them, and they had him as long as he, or as, and he stayed with them as long as they would have him. So this parable about the lost sheep. The sheep doesn't have, it's, it's teaching story, it's a parable. The sheep doesn't have much say in this, um, in the matter. It's just thrown over the shoulder of the shepherd and carried back home. But with the meaning, it's the meaning that matters. The sheep is us and the shepherd is God. God rejoices when he finds the sheep that was lost. So much that he invites his whole holy party to join in and rejoice. And there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's not to say that God doesn't love the people who need no repentance. What it is, or what it does say, is that the one who does gets the same reward as all of them. And there's a party that everyone is invited to join when that decision is made to repent. God wants us to come to that party, but we actually have to open that invitation in RSVP. The sheep just gets thrown over the shepherd's shoulder but we have to make that decision to walk in the same direction that Jesus is walking in. And this includes the big picture things, and it includes the small things. Every human activity except for sin can be done for God's pleasure if we do it with an attitude of praise. So this is our bottom line for today. God is as near to us as we are willing to walk with him. God isn't the one seeking distance. We just simply sit in our distance from God when we hold on to the things that we can't change or that we rather wouldn't change or the things that we are still so attached to to bring them to God. The things we hold on to and can't let go of are the things that fill up that space between us and God that make him feel uh, distant. Hoarding the objects of this world are not going to fill us up with for eternity. So that question that we started with is God distant or is God near? My answer to that is yes and yes. God is distant if that's all we're letting him be. God is near if we invite him to walk with us 
in our joy and in our struggle, though. In struggle, why I finish with that is because that is often the place where we really wonder where God is in our lives. Because in that struggle, we realize how much we need God there. Too often we ask this question, why do bad things happen to a good person like me? Rather, I think this is a much better response to that question, is this, because God is good, good things happen to sinful and sometimes not good people like me. When we feel like God is distant, like a doctor or a nurse, we should take, it's taking vital signs on a patient that feeling of distance may indicate that there is something going wrong in our life or some spiritual thing that is missing or not functioning like it's supposed to be that is causing us to feel that distance from God in our lives. Something that we can fix when we're honest in, with God and work on walking with him and being close to him. So applying this in our lives can actually be pretty difficult, especially the more attached we are to those things that are filling up the space between, in our lives between us and God. I think a very practical place to try applying in our lives um, is to do th these things. To start with being countercultural with our uh, emotions and being really honest in our personal reflection. If you take some time to evaluate your emotions throughout your day, asking questions like, when am I happy? When am I feeling down? Where am I? when I am feeling angry. Those are likely the best places to start in figuring out where I'm inviting God into my life and where I'm keeping God out. Some people may need a journal to do this, or some people may just be able to like reflect on this just by sitting down and taking some time to meditate on it. And it's very rewarding doing so. Because what society rewards us with is praise when we just get through things. Think of sayings like this, uh, like, wow, you handled that loss so well, or wow, you really don't let things get to you, or you don't let people get to you. And we feed off that praise from others when we should be giving that praise to God for actually carrying us through it. And it's guilt and shame that holds us back um, from being honest when we are hurting. And sometimes, sometimes people mistake that, um, that guilt for being a sign of pi uh, being, uh, or piety, of like too pious to complain to God. And I think what that is, is it's a trick. And it's actually the most powerful trick that I think that exists in all of Satan's toolbox, and it's shame. Shame holds us back when we need to ask for help. Even when it is another person we're admitting our heart or fault to, it's holding us back from even giving it to God. So maybe what you might need is an ally in that battle against shame and the deceiver a person that you can confide in before you're even ready to lament to God. And there are honest and loving, compassionate members of your community, in your family, in your life group, in your small group, that are there for you. Maybe that's all that's needed for you, if you hear this, is to just take a time for an honest reflection on your emotions, to see where you are and when you feel down or angry, to assess where God isn't exist or you've blocked God out of your life, maybe, because God will be there. He's already signed us a blank check by going up on the cross. So if you question where God is and why does God feel distant, know that he is as near as you will let him come and reside in your life. 
So today, I want to conclude with going to the same set of resources that might have caused us a little bit of discomfort earlier, actually, the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 106 is known as, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Now, it is a very lengthy psalm. It covers pretty much in poetry, pretty much the, the main things in the whole history of Israel. Um, so I'm only going to read really from the first two in the last two paragraphs, the introduction and the conclusion of this long prayer today. So please don't follow along. Close your eyes and open your ears for this and join us in this prayer. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather from us among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name in glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord.